0: Or would you believe it? The year is now almost over, and so is our time in the epistle of James. And lucky for you, in these final two instalments, the only voice you need to listen to, save my ramblings at the start here, is good old Matty Bamps. And this week, Matty is helping us consider prayer, the power, the importance, the place of prayer in our lives of every and all believers. So Lord, bless Matthew now, through time, through technology, as he brings to us your timeless word. Help us to see and understand just how important prayer is. Amen. Uh, we're coming towards the end of uh, James' epistle, so if you'd like to turn there, and I'm going to read from James chapter 5. James 5, verse 13. I'm not going to read right up to the end. I'm just going to read to verse 18. That's our passage this morning. James five thirteen to 18. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you ill? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. This is the word of God. Amen. So uh, when someone mentions prayer to you, uh, what comes to mind? When I mention that word prayer to you now, you, you good church people, what is it you think of? What is it you picture? Um, <clears throat> I don't know whether to would be honest about this or not, but I, I know when someone says prayer to me, sometimes what comes into my mind I I go back uh, some years to my teens uh, as a a teen in Mount Pleasant Baptist in Swansea and going along to the Wednesday prayer meeting. And um, there there were some wonderful people of God in that prayer meeting, some wonderful prayers prayed, some of them short, some of them medium length, some of them very, very, very long. And so one of my memories of prayer, unfortunately, and one of the associations in my mind is, I don't know if you did this, if you still do this maybe in your rooty groups when people are praying. Um, I, along with a lot of the other young people, would be there like this uh, in the pews, and you'd rest your head in your hand like that as you were praying. Always a bad thing to do with a long prayer, because quite a few times I remember doing this, and uh, as the prayer went on and on, and <laughs> you'd nod like that and wake up. Yeah, yes, clear the guilty consciences in the room, because some of the rest of you can identify with that. That's one of my associations, unfortunately, with prayer, when someone says the word prayer. Um, Maybe that's one of yours, boredom. Maybe it's routine, and that could either be in a positive way or a negative way. Routine as in growing up as a child, maybe, if you grew up in a home where prayer was believed in, and your parents praying with you, possibly. That's one of my memories of, of prayer, certainly. Prayer at home, that was a good routine. Maybe it can be routine in a negative way. You know, it's the thing you force yourself to do every morning, possibly, when you get up before you go to work, you read your Bible and pray. You've got to go through that routine. Maybe it's liturgy, depending on what your background of church is. Written prayers, uh, some of them wonderful prayers. Maybe prayers in the prayer book that you grew up with. And again, your, your associations there may be positive or negative, but these may be the things that come into your mind. And plenty of other things too, as I mentioned that word prayer. And as James mentions that word prayer in the passage we just read. For how many of us is the immediate association when we hear that word prayer Words like power, or expectancy, or excitement. Are those the first words that spring into your mind when people mention prayer? Getting excited, expecting big things to happen, expecting amazing things to happen. Again, some of this depends on our background, our history, where we were saved, if we're Christians, where we grew up, what churches we've been to. Some of us, maybe that is our immediate association. I'm guessing for a lot of us in this room, because of our church background, those aren't the first things that spring to mind. Things I think we all know which responses we should have. We should think in terms of the power of prayer, and we should think in terms of expecting God to do great things when we pray. We know what it should be, but what's the reality? What actually is it? What's our response to prayer when people mention it and we get, when we get the opportunity to do it? James, in this passage this morning, I, th- I believe this is the key thing, and you've got to judge as we go through whether this is right. The key thing in the passage you read this morning that James wants his readers to know, wants us to know, is that prayer has power, and that when we pray, we should expect things to happen. I think the phrase at the core of this passage is the last half of verse 16 there, in James 5. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful powerful and effective we're going to use that verse as the key to unlock the passage this morning I I think it gives us the gist of the whole passage that we've read James tells his readers that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective so we're going to take that verse and break it down so let's start with the first bit the prayer of a righteous person the prayer I know maybe this is teaching my grandmother to suck eggs but I think we need to start with basics what's prayer What do we mean? Does it have to be a certain form of words? Does it have to be liturgical? Do there have to be certain phrases in there? Does it have to be prayed? Do we have to pray with a certain posture? Does it have to be kneeled down next to the bed or with a head in our hands or whatever it might be? Well, no, of course it's not. Prayer is, in essence, talking with God, talking to our Father. It's praising Him. It's listening to Him as we sit and meditate on His Word it's asking him for things. It's conversation with the living God. And James wants this prayer to pervade and invade the individual lives of the Christians he writes to. And to pervade the church life of the churches he writes to. Now, this, this sometimes when we read James, we can kind of feel, like, oh, he, he's done it again. He's dropped another subject in. And I can't really see how this links with the rest. But when you really reflect on it, you see it really does link wonderfully with what's gone before. Because this section flows from all the other sections in James. What have we been looking at? We've been looking at how they're meant to have a real faith, a living faith. A faith from which works flow. A faith that isn't dead. How can you live a life like that and have a life of living faith through prayer? James has been talking to us about how we live a wise Christian life, how we can be wise Christians. Wisdom means applying the gospel to our everyday lives. How can we do that? Where does the power to do that come from when life is hard? It comes through prayer. He's been talking about trials and troubles. He mentions the word trouble in this passage. How can we survive through troubles and have we lived the Christian life in the midst of our troubles? The answer is prayer. Do you see how this section does fit? As James starts to draw to a close, it does fit wonderfully with what's gone before. They need to pray. This is James's key point. And, and prayer is meant to pervade, run through everything they do as individuals and as church. In troubles to start with, start at verse 13. Is anyone among you in trouble? Troubles and trials has been one of James's main themes, is not it? And he says to them, when you're in trouble, here's what you need to do. You need to pray. I, I know it might sound very basic. It is very basic, wonderfully basic. But the trouble is, I think, and sometimes maybe the longer we've been Christians, the less we realize this. That's the first thing we should do when we're in trouble. Pray. What do I do when I'm in trouble, when something happens, especially if it's sudden? What do I do? What are my natural reactions? First of all, in my case, panic. Um, secondly, probably try and come up with a plan. Uh, Then when the plan doesn't work, I'll chat to Calf. Or, uh, you know, I've got got other good Christian friends I can chat to, colleagues. John's a great colleague to chat to in trouble. Oh, and Sam as well. Um, You know, these are the things we automatically do in trouble. But shouldn't our first response, our first reaction be, I need to talk to Father about this, I need to pray. In trouble, we should pray. And then James says, is any among you, is anyone happy? That's not an accusing question. He's not, he's not looking at, some churches do this, and they look out for the happy Christians and then crush them. No. Is anyone happy? Praise God. Yeah, praise God. What does he say there? Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. The, I know he says sing songs, but the, the word there is related to the, the Old Testament word for Psalms. It's a, it's a praise song. It's a, a prayer song. If anyone's happy, tell God you're happy and thank him that you're happy. And this can be in the basic things of life. It doesn't have to be for the great things that we pray for, like revival and seeing conversions in the church, that we, I hope we praise God for them. But Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you that we had a good day as family. Thank you the weather was good. Thank you for the blessing of a school my kids can go to where they enjoy going and they're safe. Thanking God for the, the routine things in life that are all those good things from his hand. So you see how in every circumstance of life, James is saying pray, pray. In trouble, pray. When you're happy, pray. Pray. And what about when you're sick? Verse 14, Is anyone among you ill? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Is anyone among you ill? Prayers involved. Verse 15, The prayer, of, uh, the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. When you're ill, it is right and it is good and it is biblical to ask one another to pray. And yes, to ask the elders to pray for you too. Call the elders to pray, verse 14. Get your brothers and sisters to pray, verse 16. I'll, just, I'll come back to this, the bit about the elders praying, but I'll just say this at this point under this first heading of, of prayer because I'm just trying to make the point how all pervasive prayer is meant to be in our lives. A wise elder, if you go to them and say, will you come and pray for me, um, will will do that. They will also say to you, have you been to see the doctor? We're not trying to over-spiritualize things here and say, if you're ill in some way, um, then come for prayer and trust God to do it and don't have anything to do with any other form of blessing that God has given us in this life. No, a wise elder will say, have you been to the doctor? What advice have they given you? you take, you're taking the medicine they've given you? But the elder will also say, I'm going to pray with you. I'm going to pray for you. Prayer is meant to pervade every aspect of our lives as Christians and as church. The point of this stage is this. In trials, in happiness, in sickness, our default response is meant to be prayer. It's in different circumstances. It's in different groups of people as well. Individuals are meant to pray. Anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. If you're in trouble, pray for yourself. You happy? Sing songs of praise. You ill? Ask the elders to pray for you. Ask your friends to pray for you. It, it applies to the individual. It applies to the church. It applies to the elders. The lifeblood and pulse of the church as we wrestle with our, just like they did in James's day, with our trials and with our economic woes and with lack of wisdom and with our lack of humility. I know that uh, you know Sam has touched on this recently as well, our lack of humility and patience. As we seek these things, we need to pray the lifeblood of the church, the pulse of the church that's trying to live out a real faith, a wise faith, a faith that shows in works. Everything we've covered so far, the lifeblood and pulse of a church that wants to do those things is prayer. Before we consider the next part of verse 16, by the way, the next aspect of prayer that James wants us to encourage, before we move on to our second point, I just think we need to stop there. We must... We need to consider where we are with this, this whole issue of prayer. Have we forgotten about prayer and what it is? I, I was at a meeting um, with some pastors recently and a few of them used a phrase to this effect, that the, the prayer meeting had become the Cinderella of the church. Um, I don't mention that cause I, I, because I've got an agenda about whether it's one big prayer meeting we have or whether we pray in our rooted groups, that's not the issue. But the, some of these guys were saying you know, that what people in the church want to do least, it seems, is pray together. I think there's some truth to that, isn't there? Maybe it's particularly my generation and younger, this is particularly a problem. Because of our experiences, because of what we've grown up with in the church, we've been maybe turned off prayer and prayer meetings and we've reacted the other way. James says to us, you guys, you need, you need to pray you need to pray on your own in the quietness of your room and you need to pray together. Have we forgotten what prayer is? Have we maybe never even really learned what prayer is? We need to encourage one another in this. We need to talk about prayer. We need to read good books on prayer. I've mentioned it ad nauseum in, in Hope, but I think I can probably get away with mentioning it here one more time. Um, I'm just getting towards the end of a book by Tim Keller on prayer um, called Prayer. Uh, and I'd really recommend it. It really has refreshed my view of what prayer is and why it's so important, and very practically how to go about it. We need to encourage each other to be able to pray. But the best piece of advice, I think, for us, and this is what James is saying, really, if you want to pray better, is start praying. If you want to know what it is to pray, pray. Talk to God. Start. Start now. Even when, maybe especially when, the skies are blue. Because we talk a lot about persecution, but if real persecution comes, one of two things is going to happen to the person and the, the people in the, this room: they're either going to leave and walk away from the church and faith because they can't face it, or we're going to be on our knees praying. One or the other. So how about we learn to pray now while the skies are relatively blue? We need to learn to pray. Prayer, this is what it is, it pervades every part of life. That's the first part of the verse. The prayer of a righteous person. I'm not going to take it just two words at a time, don't worry. There's just two other headings. That was the first bit, the prayer. And secondly, let's look at the prayer of a righteous person. Those next few words. The prayer of a righteous person is what James is talking to us about. Where James is going, and the point I'm going to finish with, is the power of prayer But before we talk about the power of prayer, I think we need to grasp something else about prayer first. That prayer is the talking of a righteous person to God. The prayer of a righteous person is what James is talking about here. And it's here, I think, that a lot of us stumble straight away. We're okay with the prayer bit. We know that James threw in Elijah as an example there. He's a pretty intimidating example, Elijah, isn't he? Yeah, okay, I get the prayer bit. I get that Elijah was a powerful man of prayer and and amazing things happened when Elijah prayed. But here's where I stumble, Matt. James is talking about the prayer of a righteous person. You don't know me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the week I've had, the year I've had. You don't know how fake I feel. I do trust in Jesus, but I feel fake when it comes to this prayer thing because I'm so aware of how sinful I am and how often I fall into sin. My question for you is, if that's the way you feel, firstly, have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Do you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior? You are righteous. We all fail and we all sin, and in the way we actually live our lives, none of us is perfectly righteous. Let's not fool ourselves. But in the terms that James is talking about here, if you trust in Christ, you are righteous. Because as God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of his son. Because Jesus has done it all. So if that's the way you feel, Jesus has done it all. You are righteous if you trust in him. And a follow-up question I would ask you is this. Are you wanting to, seeking to follow Jesus faithfully? Obey his commands, for example, in the epistle of James. Is that you? Do you want, you know you mess up and you know you fail, yes. But do you want to follow him and trust him and go on following him and trusting him? Well, that's righteousness too. That's a practical righteousness, not the imputed righteousness that Jesus has given you in the Father's sight. But there's a practical righteousness too. is really what the book of James is about. James is certainly saying, strive to live a holy life, live out your faith. But he's not expecting the people he's writing to be perfect in practice. What he wants is that they want to follow Jesus and trust Jesus and be faithful to Jesus. That's a practical righteousness that we have if we're seeking to follow him. It's the way the Old Testament uses the word righteousness very often. That when Noah or Job or others in the Old Testament are called righteous, it doesn't mean they're perfect. It means these people really wanted to follow hard after God and obey him. If that's the desire of your heart, again, I want to say to you, you're righteous. I know you're not perfect, and this will shock you, but neither am I, Um But in those senses, those vital senses, when we come to prayer, we can know we're righteous because we trust in Jesus. So here's the point. James is talking about you when he says, Christian, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. You are commanded and invited and entitled to pray because of the merits of Jesus and because he intercedes at the Father's right hand this morning as your great high priest. He commands you and lovingly calls you at the same time, talk to me. Jesus says to us this morning, talk to the Father through me. Do it. When you do, that is the prayer of a righteous person. There's going to be a few others here maybe who are saying right now in in your heads, well, look, Matt, if I'm honest, I haven't trusted Christ. I can't say I'm really following him and trusting him day by day. I haven't taken that step yet. Well, what I'd say to you is this. First of all, the Bible does not promise, doesn't promise that God will hear or answer all your prayers if you have not yet trusted in Christ. The Bible doesn't promise you that. The good news is there is one prayer the Bible guarantees God will answer if you cry out to him, and it's this. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. I promise you this morning, in Jesus' name, if you haven't trusted him and you do right now, you will be saved. That prayer he will hear. But you know, the other prayers you cry out, the struggles in life, the things you go through, the things you want, when you're you're crying out to God, he may in his mercy hear and answer that, but he doesn't promise to hear and answer your prayers if you're not in Christ, if you haven't trusted Christ yet, but you can trust in Christ, and you can do that this morning. You can do it now. Come to Christ. And know what it is to talk with confidence to the Almighty. Know what it is to become a righteous person. Don't make the mistake of looking around the church and saying, I've known these guys for a while now, Matt, I know them a bit. They're not righteous. Well, I know they're not perfectly righteous, and they know it too. But they know they're righteous in Christ now, and you can be too if you trust in him. The prayer of a righteous person that James is talking about here is the prayer of a Christian. And here's the last thing I want to say or rather that James says, they want to unpack the key to this passage. The prayer of a righteous person, in other words, a Christian, is powerful and effective. This is where James has been going. What his examples in verses 13 to 15 are all pointing to what it's been leading up to. Had they been expectant when they have been praying in their trials, in their struggles, in their financial difficulties, had they been expectant as they prayed? Are our prayers expectant when we pray? There's people in this church, there's a a guy we know, a friend of ours, I won't name him. Don't worry if he's listening online, Owen Brown, I won't name you. Um, And after almost every tweet, the guy's amazing, almost every tweet is excited about something that God's going to do. And at the end of almost every tweet, he does, Now, if you don't know about such things, don't worry, I only had explained to me recently, but he does hashtag expectant expectant because I think he's expectant that God's going to do great things when he prays. And isn't that what we should be? We should all be hashtag expectant because God says that our prayers, Christians, are powerful and effective. The New Living Translation puts it this way. The prayer of a righteous person produces wonderful results. That the sense of the words here uh, that James wrote is that our prayers have a super energy Now, when we hear this, we need to realize that most of us are in danger of one of two wrong assumptions when we hear those words, or presumptions, really. Uh, Craig Blomberg, in his commentary, puts it this way, summing up what the two um, wrong presumptions we can make are. He says, somewhere in our prayers, we must find a balance between never expecting God to heal and requiring, requiring him to heal on demand. Those are the two extremes we can slip to. When we think about prayer generally, and especially when we come to this thorny issue of healing in response to prayer. So false presumption number one is the power is in me. I've just got to name and claim my healing, and it will happen if I've got enough faith. The idea here is that if I concentrate, and basically if I think positive and claim authority and try and try and try, to get my faith up from, let's say, 85% to 100%, if I can manage to do that and think positively enough and achieve this state of psychological certainty that God is going to act, if I can do that, God must and will give me what I ask for. Faith has become a power source in me. Tom loves Iron Man. You know, Iron Man's got a... Oh, man, what's he called? Uh... I know Gav's going to know what this is, but I'm not going to embarrass him and ask him. It's um, an arc reactor, that's right. The power within him, within the Iron Man suit. That's what drives the suit. And we think, this is one error we make, we think of faith as this power within me, and if I can just get it up to 100%, God's got to do what I ask. Faith is the power, the power lies within me. And therefore, if we don't get answered a prayer, and if we're not healed when we pray for healing... Quite simply, it's because my faith has been too weak. That's a false presumption. It's just wrong. It's just not biblical. James says that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective because the power is the Lord's power, and believing prayer lays hold of that. We see as you read that passage that the Lord will raise the sick person up. The power is in the Lord. So false presumption number one is, when I pray for healing or anything else, the power's in me. False presumption number two, and I'm guessing it's a lot of us here. Maybe, I hate to, no, I don't hate to generalize, I love it really. Christians especially maybe from a non-charismatic, non-Pentecostal background like me, this is false presumption number two we can slip into. And the presumption is this, there is no power in prayer. Now we wouldn't say that out loud. We wouldn't say it out loud at a rooted group. Maybe we wouldn't, we wouldn't phrase it quite that strongly. We wouldn't say there's no power in prayer. We'd say, well, there's not much power in prayer. I know God's powerful and he does great things, but there's not much power in prayer. Prayer accomplishes little or nothing. I'll do it because God tells me to do it. I'll go along to rooted every week and I'll pray with my brothers and sisters because it's obedience and God told me to pray. But there's no power in prayer. That's the second false presumption at the other end of the spectrum. Because for, for those of us maybe in that category, this is our experience. We've been in our quiet time, in our rooted group, in our prayer meeting. We've asked for God to overrule because we know we should ask. We have prayed knowing that God can overrule and can heal, for example. But too often we've prayed not thinking that God will do it. And because we prayed that way, God hasn't done it. God is sovereign He can if he chooses. This is the way I think when I'm making this wrong presumption. And yes, it's the obedient thing to prayer, but in actuality, my prayer and the church's prayers doesn't do anything much regarding the trials and the troubles of real life in this fallen world. That's a false presumption too, and it's unbiblical. And we are the Christians, if we're in that category, that James is fairly and squarely taking aim at this morning. James wants this sort of Christian to know that prayer has power and that when they pray, they should expect things to happen because the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. What's he already told them in uh, James 1, verses 5 to 8? If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. As always, James phrases it very softly and diplomatically, doesn't he? He says elsewhere in the letter, you do not receive because you don't ask. You're going to see James writing this, and he's writing to this, you "You're saying, first of all, you're not asking God for anything, and second of all, when you do, you don't believe he's going to do it. And then you're surprised when people aren't healed. I, I almost feel like he's writing to me, you reformed, non-charismatic Pentecostal Christians. You, you don't believe in the power of prayer. And you need to believe in the power of prayer because the prayer of a righteous person brings wonderful results. And James then brings up two big but connected examples of the areas in which we can pray and see results. Sickness and healing on the one hand and sin and forgiveness on the other. Um, if God's willing, next time when we look at the next part of James, we'll, we'll look at this the the sin and forgiveness aspect of this, but I just want to say this in passing. It reads a lot like, verse 15, when the elders are praying for the sick person, it reads a lot like there's a link between sickness and sin. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Short answer is yes, sometimes there may be a link between sin, personal sin and sickness. But I think it's really important to say this before I go any further. When you take a step back and look at the whole Bible picture, what's very clear is that is not normally the case. If someone is sick, if someone is ill, grievously ill, our default position shouldn't be to think that's because that person has committed grievous sin. No, that's, that's not the case. But sometimes there can be a link between sickness and sin. We'll come back to that next time, hopefully. What I want to focus on here is the issue of praying for healing, just as we draw to a close. Partly because I know I won't get away with not mentioning it at all. That um, this is the big example of the power of prayer that James brings out here. He takes this so seriously that he tells the Christians there that he's writing to that in the great trouble of sickness, they should call on the elders to anoint with oil and pray. Because it's a big theme of James. You've seen that, haven't we? Trials and troubles. And of course, in those days, even more so than in our day, sickness was a real trial. It was a real trouble. It was terrifying. Because there was no NHS. There was no funding for the drugs that we have today. There weren't the drugs that we have today and the treatments we have today. And things that don't bother us killed people in those days regularly. Sickness was a major trouble and a terrifying trial. And he's saying to them, you need to pray when you're sick. Again, he didn't stop them going to the doctor, but he said, call the elders if you're badly sick and get them to pray for you. I think it's important to make the point this is for quite severe illness of some type or another. If this isn't for the sniffles, Thomas, Thomas Manton, I don't quote him just because he's a Puritan, but because he puts it quite memorably, Thomas Manton put it this way, the elders must not be sent for upon every light occasion, as soon as the head or the foot acheth, but in such grievous diseases where there is danger and great pain. Christian who's really resting in the depths of pain and sickness, you can call on the elders to pray for you and anoint you with oil. There is no power in the oil. The oil is not magical. It's not sacred oil. It's usually oil that's been bought in co-op on the way to anoint the person. It's symbolic in some way. James doesn't say how it's symbolic. Possibly symbolic as in setting that person aside as anointing often did in Bible times, setting them aside to be healed. Possibly it's symbolic of the power of the Holy Spirit. But there's no power in the oil. It's symbolic. It's not medicinal because... Oil doesn't help with many conditions. Maybe some skin conditions, but not much. No, it's it's symbolic of something. There's no power in the oil. There's no power in the elders. There's no hierarchy in prayer. It's not that if the elders pray for you, you're more likely to get an answer, especially in this church. Um, sorry, sorry. I made eye contact when I said that. that was a bit harsh, wasn't it? I included myself in that. There's no hierarchy in prayer. It's not that if you call the elders to pray for you, God's more likely to answer because it's the elders who pray for you. No. But this is what God tells us to do, and part of the shepherding role of an elder is to pray for the sick. And yes, if they ask for it, to pray for them and anoint them with oil, symbolic of the Lord's power to heal. And because James has confidence in God's power to answer prayer, he uses very strong language here. He says, the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. All right, we could spend all day on this, but I'm just going to say a few things about this, and you can tackle me about it over coffee if you, if you disagree. I think what's been talked about here, it doesn't come through in my uh, up-to-date version of the NIV, but the James is talking here about the prayer of faith. That the prayer of faith is going that little bit beyond just our everyday prayers in faith that God will do things, that God will often answer positively. It's something special that happens, for example, when the elders pray for healing for a person in the congregation. Various commentators try and say this, but the commentator who helped me the most is a guy called Dan Doriani. He was a college professor, I think he still is, but he's also practiced as a a pastor and been an elder in a church. He talks about this occasion where he said to a friend of his who'd been ill for some time, well, you know, in this church, if you ask, the elders will come and anoint you with oil and pray for you. And then to his surprise, his friend said a few weeks, later, actually, yeah, I would like the elders to come. And Doriani said, oh, okay, right. So he got the elders to go into this guy's house. It was something to do with his heart. Um, They got him to kneel. They laid hands on him, all the elders. They anointed him with oil, and they prayed for him. Because Doriani, because it was his idea, they'd said to him, right, you can close in prayer. And he's standing there praying. Read the commentary if you want this properly. I'm I'm paraphrasing. They're they're standing there praying for this guy. And Doriani's there thinking, well, I'm doing this in obedience, but I'm not convinced much is going to happen. And then as it gets to Dan Doriani's turn to pray, he said it was as if his heart and his hands were burning. And he felt convinced, utterly convinced at that moment, that God was going to heal his friend. To the point that he felt, we shouldn't be praying that God will heal him, because I know God's healed him. He didn't say a word to his friend. Four days later, his friend um, uh, challenged him to race up some stairs and ran up to the top of the stairs, and he wasn't even out of breath. He'd been healed. And I think what Dan Doriani, the point he's trying to make there is that when we pray in obedient faith and trust God, sometimes, often, he's going to answer positively and he's going to knock our socks off. Not always, but sometimes he will. But sometimes there's something that happens called the prayer of faith, maybe linked to the gift of faith in in 1 Corinthians, where when we're praying for someone, we become so convinced they're going to be healed that that we just know they're going to be healed that the prayer of faith is something that God gives a special measure of faith as we're praying for healing for a a beloved brother or sister. You know, that's never going to happen if we're not praying in faith. We're just never going to get to that point where God does these miraculous things if we're not praying regularly for each other in faith. Thomas Manton, I quote the Puritan one more time, he puts it this way, that the prayer of faith is when the Lord grants the persuasion that he will grant healing. The power to heal, the power to change things is the Lord's, but is it, it is accessed through believing, expectant prayer. So, as I, as I wind up, what are we saying? How do we sum this up, this last point, that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective in healing, yes, and in other ways too? How do we sum up what, we, what I've said so far? Well, first thing I need to stress is this in case there's any misunderstanding, I don't want this to be misunderstood. God does not always heal. He does not always heal his people, people who love him and follow him and trust him and who he loves passionately. He doesn't always bring physical healing for them. Paul's experience tells us that. He prayed for the thorn in his flesh to be taken away and God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. God does not always heal. Our experience tells us that. Not that our experience sits above scripture, but we know our experience tells us this too, that this is what scripture means. We know people in this room, we've known Christians over the years. Lovely Christian people who passionately love the Lord and we've prayed for their healing and God has said, said, no, I'm not going to heal them, I'm taking them home. That's what God sometimes does. God does not always heal. There is no formula here, no guarantee, just because we think 100% positive that God is going to heal. Faith is not a superpower within me, which I can use to guarantee healing or anything else. We need to be clear about that. But, and here's the big, the big thing that James wants us to get this morning. God does graciously respond to praying hearts that believe and don't doubt. He will sometimes grant a special measure of faith, even as we're praying for someone, that wonderful things are going to happen. And some of us, maybe many of us in this room this morning, should expect far more than we do when we pray. We are to come earnestly, expectantly, confident that God hears. Healing is just one big example of a trouble that we face, and we face many troubles. And in those troubles, we need to be expectant that God will do great things, not because of our great faith, but because he is great, and when we trust him, he does great things. One reason that Elijah's mentioned here, surely, is that his prayers for rain, you can read about in Kings there, his prayers for rain accomplished a great blessing for all the people. There had been drought and God sent rain in answer to Elijah's prayers. But what does James say about Elijah? He's a person just like us. He's just like you and me. Read the story of Elijah, you'll see that. Defeatist, depressed, struggling at times. Powerful personality, but boy did he struggle sometimes. Just like us, he prayed, God sent rain. Believe that your prayers are effective, Christians, is what James is saying. The big message is this. God will respond to, He will hear, He will use our prayers. They are powerful and effective in His loving sovereignty, and He is utterly sovereign. Our prayers do things, they do great things. Do we believe it? That's the big question. Do we believe it? Do we not see answers to prayer because, James 4, verse 3, we aren't asking? Do we bemoan the fact we don't see many conversions, people come into faith in Christ? We don't see the growth we want to see in the church in Wales. We don't see healing. We don't get the clear guidance we want. We don't get help and wisdom in our troubles and trials. Is it because we're just not praying and not praying in faith? Uh, one of the pastors I was chatting to recently in this group of pastors, he, he shared a few lovely stories. He passed this guy I was chatting to the pastor's a small church. Um, historically, not been many people there. They've seen a little bit of growth over the years, but not much. And he shared a few wonderful stories about several people who had literally come into the church off the street and said, I want to hear about God. What can you tell me about God? And they've come to faith in Jesus Christ. Off the street. No Alpha, no food bank, no coffee, cake and company. They're just coming off the street. So I saying to him, well, what's what's the X factor? Why are people coming in off the street now and this has never happened before? He said, the church just got desperate and we started to pray. People really started to pray and plead with God and believe against the evidence that God was going to answer prayer. And then these people came in off the street and were saved. We need to rediscover and believe afresh the power of a the, so the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. We need to encourage and train and teach ourselves and each other into the habit of regular, pervasive righteous prayer, and we can be confident that the sovereign God uses prayers like those to accomplish His purposes and to do wonderful things. Do you want to see wonderful things happen? I think one of the dangers with Amherst Church is or a few of the dangers. If I can mention these, as I am going off notes, and I had said I was going to finish, and I two dangers i see with amford church firstly it's warm and it's welcoming and people like come in uh, and secondly the church has been growing in the last several years big dangers because we're not desperate because it's happening so we're relaxed and maybe that's why some of us we don't pray as we should we need to pray because our prayers are righteous and they're effective they're powerful in Christ. And when we pray, wonderful things will happen. So I'll just pray now as Rodri uh, as and the others come back up.